everybody, this is Nathan here with Jake, and you're about to listen to what we call Sound of Sanity 1.0. Now, Jake, what do we mean when we say Sanity 1.0? Well, Sound of Sanity was a show we'd been wanting to do for a really long time, and we'd never really seen our way clear to getting it off the ground. Right, so one day we decided the best way to get it off the ground was just to sit down, hit record, three friends talking into microphones. Since that time, the show has changed and grown a whole lot. The modern version of Sound of Sanity really began to develop around episode 34 on Jordan B. Peterson. Yeah, there's some stuff we're really proud of in this early iteration of this show and some stuff we're possibly, probably, maybe not so proud of. But there's some good stuff and we wanted to leave these up. Plus, we thought it'd be fun for people who know the current show to go back and see how far the show's come. Yeah, fun and maybe sometimes a little humbling. No doubt. Anyway, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the current version of the show. That's right. And meanwhile, please enjoy this episode from the archives. You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies. That's right. It's another episode of Sanity at the Movies. It's the last Tuesday of the month, and that means we're reviewing a movie. Except for last month, I think we switched it up because we wanted to get our Black Panther review to you while it was fresh. But this is Sanity at the Movies. And today we're talking about uh, 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 Iron Giant, which is based on a book called Iron Man, which is one of the things I'll talk about in my context. But first, you probably want to know the context of who I am. I am well, Nathan Albertson. I'm your humble and obedient host, agent provocateur, as I like to say, and a uh, well, el jefe, as we would call him in Spanish, the CEO of Warhorn Media, the associate pastor of Clear Note Church, my friend, Jacob Benzel. How you doing, Jake? I'm doing okay. How are you? It's pretty good. Welcome to Sanity at the Movies. Did I say we were talking about the Iron Giant? You sure did. Hey, well, isn't that fun? Yeah. Good movie, right? Pretty great. Spoiler alert. We like it. Yep. Ben's here too. Hey, Ben. Well, oh, hey, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Iron Giant, guys. Yeah. First of all, let me read you guys a little poem, a little poem that I had, and you guys can tell me how this is related to the Iron Giant. <clears throat> this poem is entitled King of Carrion. His palace is of skulls. His crown is the last splinters of the vessel of life. His throne is the scaffold of bones, the hanged thing's rack and final stretcher. His robe is the black of the last blood. His kingdom is empty, the empty world from which the last cry flapped hugely, hopelessly away into the blindness and dumbness and deafness of the gulf, returning shrunk, silent, to reign over silence. How's that poem related to the Iron Giant? And to, hint, the Iron Man. It's written by the same... Dude, wrote the Iron Man. That's absolutely correct. It is written by Ted Hughes, a very famous poetry dude, or as I like to call him, a poet. Whoa. The poet laureate from 1984 until his death, an English poet and a children's writer. He was famously married to Sylvia Plath until Miss Plath <laughs> uh, duct taped blankets over her her children's bedroom, her two young children, and then turned on the oven and uh, carbon monoxide herself to death at age 30. He was married to her until that happened. So hmm. quite the 20th century poet guy. He knew a lot about uh, well, death and despair. He knew, well, Sylvia Plath was famously depressed, and I don't mean to make fun of it, but also I don't want to be too respectful of it because I don't want anybody to think that suicidal poets are cool. I only say any of that as a way of giving you just a little bit of context of this Ted Hughes guy. I mean, this is like a serious 20th century poet guy. But he he did also write a little book called The Iron Man, 
A Children's Story in Five Nights. This book came out in 1968. It was a science fiction novel, which was described as a modern fairy tale about a metal man. It doesn't, I've not read this book. Has anybody read The Iron Man? No. Nope. Nope. It, uh, it seems to me that The Iron Giant is Brad Bird really just transforming the story into the kind of story he wanted. A- apparently in The Iron Man, what ends up happening is this Iron Man comes, I don't think he's necessarily specified as being a s- creature from space. Maybe you just don't even know where he comes from. He's just the Iron Man, and the little boy finds him. And then he ends up fighting an intergalactic space dragon Whoa. that tries and attacks Earth. There's star spirits and the music of the spheres and the cosmos. And it's very much something that you might think would be written by Mr. Ted Hughes. But that's the book. actually got changed to The Iron Giant when it was published in America. Anybody want to take a guess why that was? I'll give you a hand. It's super easy. Marvel. Marvel. That's absolutely right. There was a competing property in America that people knew about called Iron Man, that they felt the need to change the name of this children's book to The Iron Giant. Um, There's apparently also an Iron Woman book that Ted Hughes wrote, but that's the book. The Iron Giant is obviously a movie directed, came out in 99. It was a big commercial failure, didn't make any money. What they say happened is that the year before, Warner Brothers had come out with a movie called The Quest for Camelot or Quest for Camelot. Have you guys seen or heard of this? It's an animated movie like set in the King Arthur times. Nope. This is kind of around the time that all the studios were trying, like Disney was having their renaissance. They'd had a bunch of big hits with Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and all this stuff. Everybody was trying to bust in. Everybody wanted to get on in the action. So you had things like Anastasia and Mm -hmm. I remember there was like a Thumbelina movie. Different studios were spending money trying to crack the Disney formula and make their own mark in the animated realm. And Quest for Camelot was Warner Brothers' big attempt and it bombed. It did very poorly. And what happened was they already had Iron Giant in production and and they didn't end up putting any weight. They didn't want to spend a bunch of money on advertising Iron Giant because they just lost a bunch of money. So they basically lost their nerve. And then before the movie was even done being released, they regretted it because it just, it got great audience scores. Like people loved it when they did tests. The critics loved it. I want to say there's even a story of an executive calling Brad Bird and apologizing and just saying, I'm so sorry. We did not realize we had a hit on our hands and we we screwed this up. Warner's got a lot of classic blunders like that. (laughs) Like the... We've done the exact, this is our third sanity at the movies, right? And our first one was that Julie Andrews. She yes. doesn't have the weight to, to, or, or star power to carry My Fair Lady. <laughs> so she ends up beating My Fair Lady uh, at, at the Oscars for Mary Poppins. Right, exactly. <laughs> to be fair, they got Casablanca, right? Which is a pretty big crown in their star or crown in their star. Wrong, false, correct. What am I trying to Jewel say? Jewel in the crown, feather Jewel's in their cap. Star in the crown, whatever. Um, <laughs> feather in the cap, feather in their crown. Um, <laughs> we love the feathered we, crown. The feathered uh, collection crown. of poetry yes. by Nathan Alberson. Award media. What was I saying? So you saying the, the execs called Brad Bird to apologize for not pushing his yeah, masterpiece. Yeah, it was just a huge blunder, and they realized it before the movie was even out of theaters. Man, we should have. there should have been Happy Meal toys. There should have been a, a big marketing yeah. push. We should have been selling this to kids. So The Iron Giant, I don't think there's a lot we have to say about it. It was directed by Brad Bird, who's gone on to great success with The Incredibles, which everybody loves, with Ratatouille, Ratatouille, which everybody loves, although I don't think they love it quite as much as they love The Incredibles. Everybody loves There's probably not a person listening to this that doesn't love The Incredibles. Yeah, how can you not love The Incredibles? I don't think I've, you can be the most conservative. We don't watch movies 
kind of family. And The Incredibles still resonates. The Incredibles still resonates. You love The Incredibles. I've never met anybody that doesn't like The Incredibles. Young and old, black and white, uh, people like The Incredibles. So people really like this Brad Bird fella. Uh, people have come to love the Iron Giant. And what did we say? We said Incredibles is huge. They're doing Incredibles 2. Looks like it might not be uh, something we're going to entirely be on board with as Christians with the feminism and stuff. I don't know. We'll find out. But mm-hmm. looks like the plot is all like... Stay-at-home dad. Stay-at-home dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Mr. Mom, but with superheroes. Some other some other sanity <laughs> at the movies. We'll Mr. Mom. Sanity <laughs> at the movies. We'll review all right. Mr. Mom. All right. <laughs> Making grilled cheese with irons. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Brad Bird what I think what you need to understand about him, he also did Mission Impossible 4, which is a lot of people's favorite Mission Impossible movie. If you don't remember anything else about that movie, you certainly remember the part where Tom Cruise has to scale whatever the tallest building in the world is, Dubai. Dubai yeah. I forget what that name of that building is, but it's a really famous. Ben, at your fingertips, man. What's the name it's, of that? It's, it's, it's coming here. It's uh, the Burj Khalifa. The Burj Khalifa. Is that right? And that scene is a really good scene to talk about and talking about Brad Bird because he's really good at building these visual set pieces. He's a very good, and The Incredibles, all his movies are just full of these wonderful visual set pieces that tell the story through action, not through words. And that scene, I remember Tom Cruise is climbing and he's got these magical super spy gloves that stick to the wall. And then one of the gloves starts to go out and it's just a very well constructed and in a like Hitchcockian kind of a sense, no dialogue. You're just watching Tom Cruise trying to solve the problem of not plumbing, plumbing him to his death. And it's just a real good classic suspense scene. And then I think he did, then he did Tomorrowland, which wasn't as popular. I've not seen it. Either of you guys seen this Tomorrowland? Nope. George Clooney. No, not yet. First one you've mentioned that I haven't. Right. So Brad Bird's done a handful of movies and only one of them is, wasn't Tomorrowland, I don't think was majorly beloved by either critics or audiences, but the other ones have all been huge, awesome hits that have people have loved. Brad Bird was actually mentored by one of the f- famous nine old men. There's these guys called the nine old men who are these nine animators that actually worked with and for Walt Disney and really himself huh. and really helped set the stage for like when you think about classic animation in the Disney style, in the Disney studio system, the way it looked, the way those characters moved. These were the nine guys who worked there and were, were responsible largely for developing that. And Brad Bird was, I couldn't tell you the guy's name off the top of my head, but Brad Bird was mentored by one of those men. So he's part of a great animation tradition. But then he spent his time working in television. He was responsible largely for helping develop the early Simpsons look and style. Huh, I didn't know that. Which the Simpsons may not seem all that revolutionary now, but all you have to do is think about the Flintstones and the Hanna-Barbera cartoons or the Pink Panther cartoons. Think about how crude those are. And then you realize what a leap in television, budgeted animation The Simpsons was, how three-dimensional the world of The Simpsons, even the early cruder Simpsons, um, cruder in the sense of the drawing style, is is a huge leap beyond what was being done in television. I mean, it really proved that you could actually do adult, for adult, classy animation on TV that wasn't just Fred Flintstone driving past the same looping background, Mm -hmm. just obviously. So Brad Bird spent a lot of his time developing that and then ended up attached to the Iron Giant for Warner Brothers, but developed this story 
based on the Iron Man by by the British poet laureate Ted Hughes. Really wanted to Americanize the story, change it. Uh, he ended up taking the concept of an iron giant from Hughes' book and just making his own story set in the 1950s, set in a certain version of America, the story that he wanted to tell. Apparently, Hughes died right before the movie came out, never got to see the finished product, but really liked the script, liked the direction he was taking it. But the thing I want to come back to, just to finish up with Brad Bird, is he's a really good director to watch if you want to understand the nature of pure cinema. That sounds snobby maybe to say, but what I mean by that is something very simple. Brad Bird is making movies that cannot be made in any other medium. You cannot take a Brad Bird story, tell it in book form, or do it as a play, or do it as a musical, or put it on stage, or put it in a painting and have it have any of the same effect. He is doing things that only movies can do. If you think about something like what we've watched so far, Casablanca, you could put that on the stage and it might be just as effective. That movie is largely dialogue driven. And and it does some very cool cinematic stuff, but it's not anchored to cinema as an art form the way that a Brad Bird movie is. It's not principally visual it's storytelling. It's not principally visual storytelling. Even Mary Poppins, there's a lot of special effects and cool stuff, but Mary Poppins has been a play. It could be a play. You, you wouldn't lose everything. Brad Bird, his movies are visual, and it, he actually talked about the way that he developed Iron Giant. The Disney house style, the way that they develop things, is they will think first about the emotion that they want to convey, the character beat that they want to convey. They'll think about just basic storytelling as they put the story together in their story room with their writers and their people. Brad Bird approached it visually first. He was storyboarding. Now, when you're animating these things, you're always, the way that they do it in any animated project is they they do a storyboard as they go along and they build that storyboard up. But the Disney house style is to basically think about the kind of story you want to tell first and then figure out how to present it visually. Brad Bird is starting by saying, what's the visual? How are we going to communicate? How are we going to tell this story visually? And building out from there. And you can just tell with all of his movies, including Mission Impossible, which isn't animated, you can just tell that he's a visual storyteller taking advantage of the medium of film to do something that you couldn't do in any other medium. And that's what I think makes his movies really delightful. And actually the other, the fun thing about the way he, he developed, he develops his movies is that it's very akin actually to what the Warner brothers house style was. They would have in developing the gags and stuff for the classic, like Tex Avery, Chuck Jones, the Bugs Bunny, the Roadrunner, all that stuff back in the 1930s and forties, the way that they developed those cartoons was very similar. They would develop them visually. And then, you know, any kind of verbal stuff would come last. And there's just a lot of really clever stuff. Why don't you, you should just tell them about the thing now that you noticed and loved um, oh because it's a really good example yeah one of my favorite moments in the film is we get to basically the start of the third act kent mansley has hogarth in his room they're having a standoff and they're sitting on the beds and hogarth grabs this helmet puts it on his head and then he pulls the goggles down you know with his arms crossed and he's resolved and then a few seconds later there's a pan and the pan is to look at the clock Mm -hmm. to see what time it is because we're going to pan, we're going to look at the clock and we're going to see how long this is going to take. And right next to the clock is a photograph of a man climbing into a warplane holding a helmet. And that's the, that's all we know about what happened to Hogarth's dad. Right. But suddenly we know if we're paying attention to just that one little detail is thrown in there. Now we know why this kid has a single mom Mm -hmm. and it's not because dad walked out. It's because dad's a war hero and dad, 
probably died in combat or something like that. And, and it affects <laughs> the whole way that he attaches himself to the Iron Giant and the kind Absolutely. of... Absolutely. And does yeah. the camera like hang on that image for 10 seconds while sad music plays? Nope. No. They don't, buy, they, they don't milk it. They don't do anything. If you're a kid, you pro- it goes over your head. That's right. But if you're paying attention, if you're an adult, it's meaningful and... Yeah, everything about how he attaches to the Iron Giant, even the the whole you can fly scene, like mm-hmm. all of it really is poignant. Yeah. Well, and um, so just to try one more time to explain what I mean about the difference, in a Disney story meeting, what we're going to do is we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, oh, Hogarth's dad, he's not around. He's a war hero. And then maybe months later, we'll have some guy come in and he'll show us a storyboard and it'll it'll be like, here's how we're going to stage and present the idea through animation that Hogarth's dad. We'll get a flashback or we'll get a scene of exposition or we'll get mom will be telling somebody. Yeah, it could go. You know, he'll have an emotional breakdown. Hogarth will. And then mom will have to explain to somebody or Hogarth will explain to the beatnik or, you know, or maybe Disney will even be really, really smart and awesome and eventually land on, will pan past the picture. But the point is, Brad Bird's not even going to go ahead in the meeting until his first question is going to be, how are we staging this in animation? How are we taking advantage of the tools that we have as visual storytellers to tell this story in the cleanest, most emotional, richest? richest? That's going to be question number one in any story meeting. And it's going, to, and so he's just going to be developing and thinking about it in a slightly different way. And you can, I think, see that he ends up telling things in a much cleaner way than oftentimes if you have too much time to think about presenting something like that you are going to end up coming up coming up with a dumb flashback or lingering on a photograph with sad music or in there are places then that you know you can accuse him of being too sophisticated or subtle right who hogar's dad is and whatever that's not going to land on anybody it's not going to land on any kid at least well, I, I love um, Disney movies. I love big, splashy musicals where if somebody wants something or desires something, they sing a nine-minute song about it. So I think there's room for more than one kind of storytelling and more than one kind of movie. And I'm all for Disney movies where if dad's gone, then it's a huge plot point and the violins are... Well, again, you think of the the Mary Poppins... <laughs> You know, George Banks is going to have the realization that he's maybe been a bad father. Right. You're going to have Dick Van Dyke doing Dick everything Dyke, but yes. winking at the camera <laughs> as, as he as he rubs his nose in it, and right. then he's going to have a really long emotional walk to the bank. Right. You know, well, Disney's going to play every single thing like that. There will be no subtlety. Right, and he's a master of it. I mean, Mufasa like- dies. Let's spend ten minutes just having Simba, Dad, Dad, you got to wake Dad. up, Dad. <laughs> Somebody, anybody, help. And then he's going to go and going to crawl under dad's limp arm and cuddle up to him. And then Scar will come skulking out of the dust. And Simba, what have you done? (laughs) (laughs) But that's really powerful. And your kids were suitably devastated by it. Absolutely. They were. And I was as a kid. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. And I was probably old enough to be embarrassed by being devastated by the time that came out. And there's something to be said for the fact that if Iron Giant, Iron Giant could be maybe that much more, maybe it'd be schmaltzy, but there might be a way to milk that whole thing more. But it's nice to see a movie that just gives you, you know, at Warren Media, me and Jake, when we're doing, when we're developing projects is an old quote that I think the director, Billy Wilder, said, which was, give the, give the audience two plus two equals four, they might enjoy it, but give them two and two and let them make four, and they'll love you forever. And I find that I respond to things like that. I really like it when a director or a storyteller of any type trusts me to, to put the pieces put, together, put yeah, two and two together and get four. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Iron Giant certainly has a lot of stuff like that and, and yep. is missing a lot of 
stuff that you would usually see. I mean, it doesn't have any musical numbers. It doesn't have the big scene where Hogarth tells you what he wants and how he just wishes he had a cool pet that could be a standing in for his dead dad and all that kind of, you know. <laughs> There goes a boy who is strange but special. All the <laughs> diner people will say, he's got a squirrel in his box. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just leaves it all there for you to put, but it all makes real emotional sense. Like all of that is there. And it makes enough emotional sense that kids, we just watched it last night with some kids, two different families worth of kids, and they were all into it. They were all uh, remarkably still and yeah. involved for the movie and it, it, I think probably some of the movie was going over some of the younger kids heads we had kids down to ages way down there way down there Which, by, by the way folks we'll stop right here we'll say we did watch it with kids of all ages it's one of those things that you just forget about but that it does have which is surprising amount of what the filmmakers probably didn't consider to be a big deal but like they took the lord's I, name I don't know whether it was g or PG, but it must have been PG. There was some sort of soft because swearing. Yeah, there was the softer side of swearing, you could say, and and the H word, the D word, PG, yeah, PG, yeah. But they definitely take the Lord's name in vain, which was multiple unfortunate. times. Yeah, it was unfortunate, and it was yeah, you know, through the movie, sitting there cringing every time. You yeah, know? and it was cringy. Oh, okay, there we go. ChristianAnswers.net has an actual count of things. All right, let's hear it. Hell, three times. The D word one time, OMG twice, oh Lord once, God once, my God once, sweet mother of Jesus once. Really? So that's why, yeah. That's why, yeah, it is much So there's more... quite a few profanities. Yes. So folks, so beware as you think about watching it with your kids, but we did watch it with kids. And my larger point there was that they were all super involved. Uh, the, we had uh, down to about four years old and she was into it. And I think we had a one year, how old is Ozzy now? Two? Two. Two. We had a two year old that wandered in and out and could care less probably, but yep. he was the only one that wasn't engaged pretty well tracking with it. And uh, mm-hmm. probably a lot of the Cold War stuff, the Soviets, the McCarthy era stuff, there's, there's stuff that I'm sure just went over all their heads completely, sure. but it yeah, made Sputnik. emotional sense. And they got it, and they were into it. Yep. And they all love the Iron Giant. Oh, one other piece of trivia before I close up my Mary Poppins bag of context. Iron Giant himself, CGI. Completely CGI. But they actually added a fuzziness filter. Like, they downgraded the CGI intentionally so that it would fit in with the animation. I think they did a really nice job. Yeah, they did a great job. He feels like a great animated character. Yeah. There you go. That makes sense. The way that he moves is... Yeah, he's pretty fluid. Pretty spe- spectacular. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. he really is. So Ben, for someone who hasn't seen The Iron Giant, give us a synopsis of, or you could even read us a synopsis from the worldwide web of this Iron Giant film. What is this story about? It's basically E.T. with a robot. Yeah, it's basically E.T. with a robot. It's about a young boy named Hogarth who finds The Iron Giant while he's trying to eat some power transformers and yep. saves him from getting destroyed by electricity or maybe destroyed and finds that the iron giant is like a naive child they become friends and he tries to keep him from eating everything metal including train tracks and stuff tries to feed him tries to hide him while meanwhile a government agent closes in because he's heard about weird things happening and he figures out that the Iron Giant is there and that Hogarth is his friend and thinks the Iron Giant is a menace that must be destroyed. Hogarth knows differently. He and things happen. We shouldn't we shouldn't spoil it for people. Oh, whoops. We can actually not spoil this one, right? Sure. Maybe. 
I don't know. We'll try yeah. it. Well, we won't spoil it yet. <laughs> anyway. I'd actually never seen The Iron Giant until yesterday. I may have shed a, a tear or two during the spoiler section that we won't spoil yet. So that's my baggage with Iron Giant. What's your baggage with Iron Giant, Jacob? I remember watching it at home with my family growing up. And since it came out in 1999, that would have put me in high school. And I remember loving it, me and my brothers, and watching it multiple times. I was there at the beginning. You were there at the beginning. You got to experience it in the ideal way where it failed at the box office and you didn't know how awesome. You were just like, yeah, it's a kid's movie that mom yeah, rented or something. It, and- that's ex- probably exactly what happened. Probably dad picked it up at the at Blockbuster or something like that and brought it home. And, and we loved it. And it stuck for us. I don't know. High school is a weird time to to find an animated film like this, a Warner Brothers film, a non Disney film. Uh, yeah, it's not something that like you know I've seen most Disney films just because I've seen every Disney film. Sure, seen almost every Pixar film because Pixar films are good. So this was just sort of like a almost a chance chance thing in my mind. But yeah, we loved it. That I guess that's the only real baggage I bring. I have watched it since and found it to hold up. What's give us two movies that you consider to be stone cold children's movie classics so we can orient ourselves in the world of jake stone cold sheesh we already talked about one of them on this podcast mary poppins i suppose so we'll take that out of the mix you, you want to say almost anything disney or pixar can those be two <laughs> what <laughs> what's your two? favorite yeah, how about this name your favorite disney and name your favorite pixar pixar is probably going to be the incredibles disney as a kid it would have been aladdin or the lion king maybe but as an adult i don't know there's a lot to like about a lot of them. It's so I, I don't know. I, I love the whole genre, so it's kind of hard. Yeah, brewing out all Disney movies and Pixar movies. What children's Stone Cold classic is your favorite? Iron Giant. Iron Giant. Well, there you go. Maybe the in the Ameri- in an American Tale. I don't know whether American Tale would hold up or not. I've not seen it forever. I, I love that as a kid, but now as an adult, I'm like, what? A children's movie about the Jewish experience and like Russian pogan, pog, pogoms? It totally works, things? man. And, and what what works about an American Tale? What worked? I remember what working about what working. I remember what's working <laughs> about the American Tale. <laughs> Mother Russia. <laughs> uh, look, as a kid, it's just playing on your fears, your deepest fears. The idea of being separated from mom and dad. There's no okay. You're right. Having every chance to you know being right there, then being around the corner all the time, and always missing them, and having to make it on your own, and having to face a world where you're separated by mom. That's scary and frightening. But there's also something really cool and validating about the fact that, and then it's really happy. You make these cool friends like yeah. Tigger and yeah uh, and they look out for you you know you've got you. the big brother who looks out for you and gives you a cool nickname calls you Philly and you got the sweet girl who's like a motherly figure band together with your band of misfits and they save the day and then he gets reunited to his family and it is I cannot name a moment in movies that I was more emotionally wrecked by or invest or invested in as a kid than the almost miss. There's one scene in particular I don't I couldn't tell it's you. It's on exactly the gangplank. Yeah, where he's they're walking above, above he's and below. they're walking yeah. Agonizing. Yeah. It's agonizing. It's uh I don't know that I've ever there's certain scenes that They changed my into name the movie. to Tilly. Maybe they changed Fivel's name to Philly. Yeah. Uh, mom and dad are engaging with Big brother, big sister. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it does the reverse thing for you as a dad. It plays on the drama of having lost oh. a child the uh. whole way through. The same way as a kid, it plays on the drama of mm-hmm. being separated from mom and dad. And so it's painful both ways, but good, satisfying, engaging, dramatic, cathartic. Engineer, 
Oh, I had that same experience with an American Tale when I was a kid, for sure. Loved it for that reason. I know there's something about it, experiencing the fear and loneliness that I just loved as a child. <laughs> yeah, the, the misery of, <laughs> despondent misery of the immigrant experience. That's right. Oh, that's right. It was great. <laughs> colorful animated glory. Uh, what a weird idea for a movie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do like it, but yeah. what were they thinking? Like, why did they, they were right. But even when someone's right, sometimes you have to say, <laughs> why did they think this was going to work? <laughs> well, I think you said it. It taps into your childhood fears. I don't think they get that movie made if Spielberg doesn't decide that he thinks it's a good story. I think anyone else walks into a studio and pitches that thing and they're just like, no, we're not going to do a movie, really, even though it doesn't say it about the, the Jewish immigrant experience with, well, with but that's mice what, for but kids. But that's every Broadway movie ever is about the Jewish experience. The um, What we know as apple pie Americanism is really just the Jewish experience. But you're supposed to disguise it as apple pie Americanism. That's how you make it work to just nakedly do well, like a movie. Fid- Fiddler on the Roof work. Yeah, yeah okay. I, I but know. it was a big risk and people were really uptight about can we actually do this explicitly? And if someone said we're going to make Fiddler on the Roof and we're going to make it for children and it's going to have animated singing mice, then um, I don't know why that we person would We won't say they're Jewish. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they'll be Jewish. Jewish. It'll be... <laughs> but yeah, I mean... We'll have know. Russian cats burning their village. <laughs> it's just like, what? <laughs> it's great. It worked. I'm wrong. They're right. History proved me wrong before yeah. I was even born, but it's just funny that they, they did that. Anyway, Ben, your favorite childhood mm. movie. I, I have no idea. Sorry. American Tale was, was up there, but I haven't seen it since I probably was a child. So some, some Disney stuff. Not a, not a huge Disney. Uh, probably The Incredibles. My favorite Pixar would be probably Ratatouille, which, fun fact, we all like. Our, all of our favorite uh, <laughs> uh, Pixar is... Uh, every, every favorite non-Disney movie is Brad Bird. Is a Brad Bird. <laughs> Kids movies that I loved as a kid. I don't know if I loved it, but in terms of movies that just affected me, E.T. would be up there, actually. Yeah. Oh, you went outside of animated. Um yeah, I don't know if we were allowed to go outside of animated. You're but making the rules, man. So did I? Did I say that we? Had I don't to stay know. With no, the, you know, you we did. Just no, I was wondering why. No, it's just that so. I didn't. In my mind, I didn't break that category. You know. Right. Well, once you sort of open it up to those kinds of things, then it's like, is Raiders of the Lost Ark my favorite kids' movie? Probably mm. shouldn't have watched it as a kid, but uh, I did, and it was. Top Gun was one of my favorite kids' <laughs> right, movies. The Terminator <laughs> was one of mine for sure. Right. <laughs> That's all why we're all such balanced, well-adjusted yeah. individuals. <laughs> right. Yeah. Ben, when did you see Iron Giant? A couple of years after it came out. Probably, yeah, 2001-ish. Were you a fan of the Iron Giant? Yeah, I, I liked it. I liked it. I didn't actually... I've only seen clips from it since then. I think I'd like it more now. But I remember liking it. I haven't thought about it much since then. Yeah, I, it's, it strikes me that it's impossible to truly put myself in the head of someone more like Jake who's had it for a while in his life and has watched it with his kids and stuff. Having just seen it yesterday, it's like, I really admired the craft. And I'll say again about if you want to know what I'm talking about with Brad Bird's visual storytelling, just watch that movie. Not that you'd actually want to do this, but I defy you to do this and have it not work. Turn the sound off and you'll realize that the whole story works without dialogue. The whole story, everything that you need to know is told visually in that movie. He pulls out a Superman comic. He pulls out an Atomic Man comic, Iron Man or Iron Man, Iron Giant looks at the one and wants to be like Superman. He looks at the other one and rejects it. It just plays out visually. There is dialogue, and the dialogue does some work, but it's basically... He takes a big, towards the beginning, halfway through, he takes a big S and puts it on his chest and Mm -hmm. strikes a Superman pose. Yeah. Because he doesn't want to be a Tamo. Right. Spoilers. Yeah. Closing scene of the film, he 
goes off into the wild blue yonder in a Superman pose to detonate the atomic bomb in the stratosphere mm-hmm. and save everybody. Right. Yeah. And he strikes a kind of a Superman-y pose as he's doing it. As he's it. doing and, it. And there's this dialogue that's... You choose who you want to be. You you decide. You choose. And he's got a choice to be a gun or to be Superman. Mm-hmm. It's I almost want to say with a movie like this and with a filmmaker like Brad Bird, what you're basically watching is a silent movie that has dialogue as a concession to commercial audiences that like dialogue like nobody wants to actually just go see a movie that's billed as a silent movie but what you're really watching here is a movie and anyone that you know some critic or somebody might watch the movie and say the dialogue's trite it is trite but that's because it's completely and utterly beside the point it really is almost non-existent right there's very little of it yeah they do some cute things there's a beatnik guy that he's talking the kid adopts some beatnik mannerisms there's some kind of fun stuff for adults they they lay some jokes in for the adults with the dialogue and they also i mean they give the kids enough jokes to sort of relieve some tension here and there and allow them to relax and laugh a little bit but yeah i i watched the movie and i primarily responded to it uh i was really moved by the iron giants final um i guess we're talking spoilers now by his final self-sacrifice um when he chooses to be superman instead of the atomic man that was a tearjerker of a scene mostly i was kind of watching it on a level of filmmaking craft it was it was just a fun movie to watch visually the way that it was animated the style i don't know if that's art deco i'm always confused about what art deco actually is but i, I yeah i think know. the giant himself is, yes. has some art deco for sure elements and he kind of has those rounded shapes those like you think of with the chrysler building or other art deco things so there's my smart take on art deco and how it played in this movie what is it about these kinds of movies that are affecting for people? Because I consider this to be on the short list with something like E.T. Mm-hmm. or with, I want to say it's kind of a boy and his dog story, basically. If you, yeah. had to, if you had to choose a genre for it and the same feelings that you get with old Yeller, you meet this thing, you make friends with this thing, this thing sacrifices itself in some way and you really love the thing. Yeah, so we establish who he is early on. He's a kid who whose mom works double shifts because she's a single mom and he's home alone and he's taking care of himself and he's picked on at school. A latchkey kid, I think. Yeah, he's a latchkey kid. You know, go home, make yourself some dinner. Mm-hmm. Don't stay up too late. Don't don't watch any movies. I'll be home late. I'm working a double tonight. You know, that's the kind of introduction we have. Comedic smash, smash cut to him staying up late, eating junk food and watching old monster movies. We also have established he has a history of finding animals, raccoons and mm-hmm. squirrels and whatever to be his friends his pets and then he goes and he makes this friend Mm -hmm. and the friend loves him and cares for him and protects him and his super wish fulfillment he says i'm the luckiest boy in the world i've got my own pet robot right Right. (laughs) and the you know he gets to ride on the shoulder of the robot above the treetops and do cool stuff but yeah he becomes attached he doesn't have a dad but now he's got this sort of or any friends really Mm -hmm. And so now he's got this super cool iron giant pet robot and he's responsible for it and has to take care of it. And he does. And as he does, he finds a different sort of father figure in this beatnik scrap scrap uh, yard artist mm. guy <laughs> who who does look out for him and care for him. And but is kind of more like a cool uncle 
who's not going to tell on him and stuff. Me and Jake disagree about this. I'm convinced the guy had just smoked a little bit of uh, the old, uh, what do they call it? Um, reefer. Reefer. <laughs> <laughs> there was a little reefer madness going on in this one scene where the kid interrupts him late at night and he seems very mellow, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> but... If so, they gave us two and two. He's a mellow kind of guy. I made four. Jake, Jake didn't make. Jake made five. <laughs> Who knows? You know. <laughs> anyway, well, good, I'm not putting Dean above it. I'm just saying that it <laughs> may or may not have been there. I'm, I'm going to choose to believe it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> a funny cigarette. That's what I wanted. He just. I think he just smoked a funny cigarette. But anyway, you know what you have then is not just the nobility of a sacrificial hero who's worked it out and decided to do the hard thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, working on your emotions, but you have the personal loss of Hogarth and the emotional bond between him and the hero. And that that just strengthens everything and makes it that much more emotional and compelling. Mm -hmm. Um, It also just taps into that. I had dolls that I carried around. must have been until I was seven or or eight, which was too old. And I think I brought Ernie Burton Cookie Monster as a sleepover and my friends weren't very kind about it. Uh, (laughs) So that was the end of (laughs) them as my friends. But I don't know. There's something about when you're a little kid and you just need a friend, even a pretend friend. And it's not necessarily because you're in any kind of abusive or traumatic or fatherless situation, but you just, as you're processing this big world you just want like a friend to do it with i don't know i'm not a child psychologist i don't know why kids carry around dolls and stuff but they do yeah i mean what boy didn't want to have his own personal robot or droid of some kind his own r2d2 his own probably not his own c3po but you know his own r2d2 his own what kid growing up today doesn't want his own personal bb8 right in this case your R2-D2 is as big as a mountain. Mm-hmm. It's cool. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Well, there's something about having that friend that's enough of an adult to be able to protect you and be awesome and navigate his way through a big, scary adult world in a way that you can't, but also cuddly and fun and childlike enough that he's just your, your pal. Yeah. Somebody that's bigger than you and can... Or it just has the right superpowers. E.T. Yeah. may have been a kid and even smaller than Elliot, but you can he can... Also- he can also heal you. Yeah, and make your and bike fly. make your bike fly, yeah. yeah. Flying kind of plays into all of these one way or another. <laughs> yeah, it really does. It really does. If we're doing wish fulfillment. <laughs> yeah, by the way, guys, Mary Poppins Returns teasers out. Reactions? <laughs> mm, Mary Poppins it. holding on to the kite, man. Mary Poppins holds on to the kite, yeah. So, folks, I was actually with this teaser until not Julie Andrews showed up, and then I was like, oh, they... <laughs> They needed to go back in time. They needed to do one of those CGI things like they did with Grand Moff Tarkin. <laughs> well, you know, we talked about this some yesterday, but I I think that was the only thing that they could do. They had to go ahead. Just and rip the Band-Aid off. Like, ri- sorry. Yeah, yeah. They could have done a teaser trailer that was really evocative and emotional, got you really excited for something that they couldn't pull off, that they know they can't pull off, right. and that you know they can't pull off, which is reproduce Julie Andrews as right. Julie Andrews. What they have to give us is Emily Blunt as Julie Andrews. Uh, yeah. And that's much more difficult. That's what it really... Spin that character. And that's part of what they accomplished in the trailer was tipping their hat to the spin of the character, I think. But Um, you really just have that feeling. It's not Emily Blunt playing the character of Mary Poppins. It's Emily Blunt having to also actually play the character of Julie Andrews. And it's just like, I don't think anyone can play. I think Julie Andrews was the best Julie Andrews. Yeah. Sorry, Emily Blunt. (laughs) You seem like a talented lady. It's too bad that you 
don't get to be Mary Poppins. Right. I'm sorry that you're not <laughs> because Julie Andrews defined, yeah. defined Mary Poppins for us as Julie Andrews. Right. And sorry so. that you're not transcendently <laughs> wonderful and practically perfect in every way. <laughs> as Julie Andrews truly is. Right. I don't know. But it was a nice trailer up until not Mary Poppins showed sure. up. It was nice. Not Julie Andrews. Sure. Yeah. I, was, I found myself surprisingly willing to accept uh, not Dick Van Dyke. Right. Yeah. That was fine. But or at least withhold my judgment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I understood like that. Really, is the difference. Dick Van Dyke's wonderful. He's great. But I think we can all accept a substitute Bert. Sure. But I don't know if I can accept the substitute Mary Poppins. I mean, it's just Julie Andrews is Mary Poppins in a way that very few characters. The the reference point Jake came up with, which I think was about right, is everybody before when Heath Ledger took on the Joker said, "Oh, it's Jack Nicholson. He's never going to do it." And then he did something completely different with it. But there's a character that has had multiple incarnations and as iconic as Jack Nicholson is, it really is about the character. It's not about Jack Nicholson at the end of the day. I'm not sure that's true for most Mary Poppins fans. Well, the the first analogy I came up with for the way it actually is, Johnny Depp is Jack Sparrow. Right. And And like those movies or lump those movies, I think that's a good analogy because... Like or lump? Like or lump. Isn't that a thing? I think that's a thing. Okay. Um, Like or hate there's not two love L's. or hate him love, love him or hate him those I don't know. you're probably right like or lump i just never heard that before i'm pretty sure it's a thing ben look up like or lump like love or, or hate him <laughs> <laughs> like or what like Wait. or lump i'm not crazy <clears throat> i believe love him or hate him love him or hate him those movies are about johnny depp is plays doing... an interesting character that only he can play because he created that character yeah yeah like you don't want to see somebody else's take on jack sparrow that's like somebody else playing Johnny Depp, and Johnny yeah. Depp is the only one that can play Johnny Depp. Pity the fool who tries to play Johnny Depp in the Pirates of the Caribbean reboot 20 years from now. That's right. Just like we pity the fool that played the Mr. T part in the A-Team. <laughs> yes, uh, pity the fool <laughs> remake. <laughs> oh, and we pity the, the fool who took on trying to be Julie Andrews' poor girl. But, you know... Yeah, maybe she'll pull it off. Maybe she'll pull but it see, off. See, that's why I'm saying that Disney... They were smart and... What they're doing is they're telling you, adjust your expectations. Right. And that's smart. This movie won't be they practically could have perfect. Said, they could have made something really evocative and really built up your expectations, playing all of your nostalgia, playing on all your nostalgia for Julie Andrews. And instead, they said they played on your nostalgia for Mary Poppins, and then they showed you their new Mary Poppins. And, you know, if you go into it with adjusted expectations, then probably it's going to be a pretty good movie because Disney's not, Disney's not striking out these days. They certainly have the resources to throw at it. Jungle Book was kind of a... A lot of people like Jungle Book, not us. Yeah, um, I didn't. It see might it. have been a base hit, but it wasn't a home run. No, it was for. I mean, a lot of people really liked it. It just it wasn't the Jungle Book that I wanted. I think. Yeah. I think I can be kind enough to it to say maybe it was the Jungle Book that a lot of people wanted, and I think those people were probably wrong. But whatever. But Beauty short. and the Beast, Cinderella, mm-hmm. yeah. they nailed them. Yep. Did a great job with both of them. Yep. Didn't see either of those either. <laughs> like or lump? Is it a thing or not? Come on, man. Yeah, it's an expression. Means there you, go. you have to accept a situation you that you right. can't change. Exactly. So what? like like Johnny Depp or lump Johnny Depp. Is that how you use it? You just uh you, you just tell, tell someone Johnny Depp is I don't know. Nah, I don't know if you use it that way. You just say like it or lump it about a situation, not a person. Yeah, I think usually you do exactly what I did, which is to be like like him or lump him. Johnny Depp is. Okay. Um fine. So I don't know whether that means Ben's right or wrong, but I don't know either. Is, I haven't heard it before. I'm right. Um, I'm sure you're right. Yeah. Like me or lump me. I know the <laughs> phrase like or lump is a thing. 
love me or hate me, I didn't until now. <laughs> okay, yeah. So that's Mary Poppins trailer. Iron Giant. What else is there to talk about with this movie? It's a really good movie. I recommend it. It's a good kids movie. Um, parental discretion advised. Parental discretion advised. RE language. Yeah, for language like we talked about. We had some pretty young kids, and there was one little girl that was watching it from another family who was a little scared near the beginning. She's, what, four? The movie comes out of the gate and you don't know, unless you've watched a trailer or you've seen it or you've listened to this show, you don't know that the Iron Giant is good. Right. And so a little kid who's just going to, you turned on a movie, um, the Iron Giants, they let him be pretty scary and intimidating at first. Right. And kind of play into the paranoia and the fear about, I mean, it, the, the, the movie opens with Sputnik mm-hmm. in orbit ab- above Earth. And then, boom, here comes this meteor shooting across the sky and landing in Maine. Right. And this iron giant appearing in the middle of the ocean and scary things happening and people being terrified and you get scary scenes with him traipsing half hidden through the woods and not knowing what's eating out there. metal things and cars disappearing and tractors having big bites taken out of them and well we realize he's friendly 25 probably, minutes in or probably less. sooner than that probably 10 to 15 minutes in but the first 10 or 15 minutes up until then are a little yeah i mean we had a four-year-old there who curled up with her dad and ended up but she was able to sit through it jake leaned over at one point during the scariest part and said it's okay he's a iron giants you know he's he's a good guy or something like that and that seemed to basically do the trick i think i don't know whether she enjoyed yeah i I knew that the transformer scene was coming up and that that was going to be a little scary and i just wanted to yeah but that also brings up a a larger point in terms of the movie's messaging, which is the other thing I really want to talk about in this movie. Bradbird's an interesting guy with the messaging, which maybe we can talk about. But this movie's messaging is interesting in that the bad guy is like a square jawed dragnet style kind of all-American Jagger Hoover era FBI kind of guy. I don't. I don't think he's actually from the FBI. In the he's movie, from a but, secret department. But he's know? very much based on the Hoover idea of what an American, you know, a secret agent type guy. He's, he's wears the suit. He's got the pipe. He's real clean cut, square jawed. Has a real all-American kind of a voice. Hey there, Scout. Hey there, Scout. He's played by Shooter McGavin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's. Not presented very sympathetically, I don't think. Nope. He uh, shows up. He immediately decides that this thing is a menace. We don't know where it's from. If it's not American, if we didn't it must make be it, bad. If, if we didn't we make didn't it, then it there, we then need to blow it up. Those, yeah. are our, those are our options. I don't know. No reason to be coy about it. I'll just say I'm always a little bit uncomfortable with those kinds of things because I get it. McCarthyism was bad. Maybe some of our listeners think McCarthyism was good. I think you're crazy. I think... The liberals can be awfully obnoxious about those kinds of things, but Joe McCarthy was not a good guy. Come on. So a lot of the Red Scare stuff that happened wasn't necessarily good. But what I think people tend to forget when we make movies about this era, about Red Scare, about Soviet propaganda, about America, when we do those kinds of movies now and we kind of make fun of the stupid Americans who are all scared and paranoid and ready to blow up anything that's not Uncle Sam and Doesn't apple pie. Have a, an American flag on the side of it. Yeah. What we forget is that there was a really scary Cold War going on with a really big, aggressive country with nuclear bombs aimed at us and. And a satellite in orbit watching us and they beat us up there. Yeah. And it was scary and Russia was bad and there was a reason. 
that, you know, it wasn't just all baseless paranoia. You know, when you watch like the great McCarthyism play is The Crucible, which is about the Salem, which is a the Salem witch trials, but it's actually a metaphor for what was going on in America at the time. Well, the Salem witch trials, probably they weren't witches. Probably it was just people's imaginations being overwrought and them harming some innocent people or maybe some not so innocent people. But the point is things got out of hand. People got carried away and it was all baseless. That's not the case with the Red Scare stuff. It wasn't all baseless. There was a big threat. There was something scary going on. People had a reason to be afraid. And so it's not that some of the overreactions, I'm not arguing in favor of all of the bad things that happened, of all of the things that were done in the name of America. I don't even accept that uh, Salem witch trials were baseless. How's that for tinfoil? I started to correct myself because (laughs) I don't necessarily either. But for the point of, for the sake of my argument, let's say the Salem witch trials insofar as what's his face Arthur Miller was using them as a metaphor yeah, for yeah, the, yeah. what he was saying was here's a famous story from history of how some dumb people got it wrong a bunch of innocent people suffered McCarthyism was some dumb people overreacting but it wasn't some dumb people getting it wrong there really was a real threat a real threat and there really were communists in America that were trying to subvert things I mean I don't know this isn't a American history podcast, nor is it a socialism versus capitalism, nor is it any other thing. I don't want to go f- too far down that that tr- that bunny trail, but I just want to say I always get uncomfortable with the portrayal of square-jawed 1950s people like that as being stupid because they just weren't stupid. Yeah, but he's he, I think he's neatly counterbalanced by the general. The threat's real. Right. But it's really clear that what you have in this guy Kent, what's his name again? Kent Mansley. Kent Mansley. Or Manley? Is it's it Mansley. Mansley. Yeah, Kent, Kent Mansley is an ambitious guy who just wants to cause some drama and move up in the world. The general knows that. And so the general's not going to give him anything until he says he has proof. When he says he has proof, the general takes the threat seriously and marches in the tanks. Mm. So, you know, he gets a report that the giants killed a kid. So they find the giant and attack the giant. And then the giant goes nuts and is really scary. And of course, you even could. after the giant goes nuts and is really scary, the general's willing to listen to people saying, no, it's a defense mechanism. You started this and he didn't kill the kid. He saved two other kids and he still has a kid with him who's alive. And the general immediately knows what Mansley's doing and he orders everybody to stand down. So the general's got good sense about him. In that sense, he's a he's an incredibly reasonable person who still takes threats like this seriously, seriously enough that they called in ships with nuclear capabilities right. and they had the army there, but also willing to to step back and reevaluate and reassess the situation. Mansley as a villain, he's out of control. And, you know, they give him the great little coward scene at the end where, you know, he steals the radio, orders a nuclear strike, then realizes that he called a nuclear strike down on the giant's current position, which is his own right. current position. So he jumps in the car and in the Jeep and tries to leave. Right. <laughs> I want to live, you know. <laughs> Anyhow, all that to say, Mansley is a caricature of the guy that you're talking about. 
but I think I don't know. I think the general is a nice a nice counterbalance. A nice counterbalance to that. Yeah. Yeah. The movie didn't feel as unfair as a lot of movies that depict like a lot of times when people are talking about or depicting the 1950s, it feels to me like they'll make one of two obnoxious errors. Either it'll be like Christian conservative people who want to idolize and idealize the 1950s and say like, oh, couldn't we just go back to that? You know, when men were men and father knew best and all that kind of stuff. And then it'll be the people on the other side just making fun of that and assuming everyone was a hypocrite or an oppressed homosexual and everything else. And it was all just everybody was sleeping with each other and everyone was paranoid. And we can't buy that any of what's come down to us as cheesy goodness of the 1950s had any sort of real basis in reality and it was all just a fraud and Mm -hmm. the military industrial complex was machine was moving on and building the terrible world that we know today but everybody was had to put a smiling face and live in uh what's that movie called where they they get transported back into the black and white yeah what's that movie called ben it's a movie about like they drop the remote and it gets possessed and then they get like sucked into an old father knows best style sitcom. Oh, okay. I never did see it. I know what you mean. And then as it the has, people like the, discover themselves Knox. sexually, they suddenly burst into color and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, why I never saw that movie. Pleasantville. 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 So uh, you know that's 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 what most people think of that era. And I don't know. I mean, I think the truth is probably that human beings are always full of repression and sin and all the rest of it and but also some of the good again we're not doing a sociology podcast here folks i'm just saying i don't necessarily like it when those things are portrayed in a two-dimensional way which is kind of an interesting thing to say about a cartoon right because the whole thing is two-dimensional right but jake's right this movie had more nuance and kent mansley felt a little bit less like he was supposed to be representative of the whole everybody but more like the kind of guy that you send all the way up to Maine because some kooky guy reported seeing a giant robot in the middle of the ocean mm-hmm. in 1957 the r- real guys who know what they're doing have more serious work to care about and it just kind of stinks for everybody that he stumbled onto something real i think that's fair i think having the beatnik be the other i liked the beatnik i thought he was a good character and a lot of fun but having him be the other father figure is the only thing that kind of stacks the deck a little bit in a way that i don't like because suddenly it's like well the losers and the outcasts and the artists are the good guys and the square jawed um, all-american guy is the bad guy, the bad guy. and i'm like yeah. that's just simplistic but you but you know that the kid loves his all-american dad who, right at least you two through that very the brief very shot of the photograph shot. Which is beautiful. Yeah. Um, that's another yeah. that's another way the deck gets very subtly unstacked. Yes. Um, but let's talk about messaging in Brad Bird movies because it's actually a pretty interesting topic. I've not seen Tomorrowland, which I think might really inform this discussion and neither have you guys. Yeah. But if you want to think about the Iron Giant, it's got this message. What's the message of the Iron Giant? It's that you don't have to be a gun, even if you they can made choose, you to be a gun. Yeah, you can choose choose who you want to be. You don't have to be a gun. Right. Even if you are made and designed to be a gun, you don't have to be a gun. You can be Superman if you want to. And then you got The Incredibles. Save the day. Which everybody loves The Incredibles, but people have some strong reactions to the messaging of that movie because it's pretty on the nose about it. There have been more liberal people that have accused that movie of being fascist. Like, they'll use that word. Because if everybody's special, nobody's special. That's the message of the movie. Which means the movie must be... Don't oppress us. What's the name of that, uh, that crazy philosopher? For a guy that Adam Smith. No, I'm uh, thus spoke Zarathustra. Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Yeah, it's a Nietzsche Nietzschean allegory for the the Ubermen. There's some people that are just like better, and basically the movie's Nazi Nazi propaganda. That's what 
some people on the internet <laughs> <laughs> like to say about the Incredibles. That's what you would say if you were a Marxist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the Incredibles, I don't know. I like it. It's a. I couldn't believe, I remember watching it. I don't know. When did it come out, Ben? Two, whoa, 2004. Yeah, years later. That's right. 2004. I remember 2004. I was still in college. I remember seeing it, just being shocked. He got away with that kind of mess. I don't know. It just didn't seem like... Yeah. It's, it's, re- not, it's really refreshing. It's the opposite of most Disney movies that say, as long as you try, you're special. Yeah. No, like, no, you can't. Syndrome actually. tried really hard and he just wasn't special. Yeah. Except for he kind of was because he made himself into an awesome James Bond villain. Yeah, but that's all he had. Right. He wasn't... Nat- I mean, you know, Mr. Incredible is Mr. Incredible. Only one of them. Frozone's Frozone. He wasn't being a jerk to, maybe he could have handled it better, but when little boy syndrome wanted to tag along, it's like, no, you're going to get hurt and you're not going to be helpful. And I'm a superhero. Away. Yeah. And you're not. I don't know. The problem, I guess if you wanted to argue against it, if the devil's advocate alarm was to go off and if we were doing an episode about the Incredibles, what you'd probably say is nobody that watches that movie walks out and thinks they're syndrome. Everybody that watches that movie walks out and thinks they're an incredible. And sure. that's kind of a weird false validation that you get from the movie. You get to think you're the special one. And it's like, eh, Maybe you're not the special one. Yeah. If there's anything fascist about the movie, I suppose it's that, but yeah. Jake's not buying it, though. He doesn't. No, I think you're right. That is. That's what the devil would say, right? That is what, if I were the devil, that's what I would say. I would say that you went and you ended up being validated because you feel special. You want to feel special about yourself. And so, guess what? Everybody walked out feeling special. Nobody's special. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is, I mean, it was a sweet kind of validation because maybe many of the listeners of our podcast grew up homeschooled and we were told they were special mm-hmm. all the time. But if you grew up like me, I grew up in the public school and you just get sort of churned through the system. It's meant to be a leveler right. and to make you feel leveled. And it does. It was nice. And it's nice to see a movie handle, at least try, whether it succeeds or not, it tries to handle in a responsible way the idea of being exceptional. You know, what is Dash's responsibility to his classmates when he's in a race with them? And they land in an interesting place, which is that he comes in second or something like that, doesn't he? he, Maybe he wins, but he doesn't win by as much as he could win by. Right. You have this power. You can't just use it to rub it in everybody's rub it in face. everybody's face. Yeah. So it's an interesting movie. And it's interesting that a mainstream movie would actually uh, ask that question and then try to answer it in a responsible way. So you've got that. Then you've got Ratatouille, which we were talking about at a delicious lunch at Steak and Shake today, wherein Ben spent, I want to say, forty-five minutes haggling with the lady when he was trying to pay because she couldn't get his <laughs> app. He pulled out his Steak and Shake <laughs> app. She had to like. She had to like work and then made a refund yeah. and then is. ended up being charged a, a penny so that he could leave a tip leave a tip yeah. because of a yeah it was a good time function i would say 45 minutes minimum that happened yeah, yeah we spent we spent more time waiting for ben to get the payment taken care of than we did actually sitting and eating and talking it was amazing that's that's about right <laughs> yeah i gave you guys time to play candy crush on your phones and <laughs> the important things that you have to do <laughs> you know i didn't even bother i I, well, first I would have pulled out Candy Crush. I would have pulled out Versus. Right, yeah. No but no but I didn't even bother because I just kept assuming that it was going to get done because who takes that long? And yeah, every yeah. minute, every minute you're like, this is the last minute. Like, this can't possibly go another minute of Ben. <laughs> this is insane. How is this possible? <laughs> I can keep it going. I know how to keep things moving. <laughs> you sure did. Anyway, <laughs> the larger point of that was before that chunk, we, just, we were discussing Brad Bird. Ratatouille, interesting movie to discuss. I don't think any of us has seen it in a while. And, yeah, um, I haven't. I remember really loving it. 
But then you have some interesting things about the movie, such as dot, dot, dot. The fact that people saw, what's the rat's actual name? Uh, Remy, Remy the rat. Saw Remy's story as a coming out story, whether it was coming out with his family as or coming out publicly at the end of the film, saw it as gay revolution metaphors and stuff like that. His family is all just like, just wants to eat their trash and he's a gourmand and it's not that hard to see, I guess, if you start thinking about it. I didn't, I actually didn't know that. They use him for his for his gourmand sensibilities to protect them, but they right. think it's kind of gross and weird and disgusting that he has those sensibilities in the first place and that he bothers to do anything besides be a normal rat. I will admit that, that the th- thought had never crossed my mind until our fateful stake and shake uh, trip when I first saw it i just thought oh it's a story about an outcast who finds his place folks i submit to you that we cannot do away with every story about out an outcast that finds his place just because True enough they can be used as metaphors for gayness we lose some really good stories but maybe this one's terrible i don't know no, i don't I, I don't know that it is i just think that any hammer is good enough to bang the gong of the gay revolution and yeah that's <laughs> That's what people were doing. Yep, yep. And no, but I, I enjoyed it. I didn't, I know a lot of people that it was, that it's their favorite Pixar film. It, it is my favorite as, as far as it's I It's not my favorite, since. but it's, it's really good. I, I'm a sad single a person that cries myself to sleep every night all alone. So I don't actually have a lot of excuses to watch Pixar movies like nearly as often. As, like Jake, you you'll, I'll hear you talk about the new kids movies and I'll be like, you know, I'd kind of like to see that, but it's, I'm never going to take the time to go see that by myself without right. kids, you know? But as far as the ones I've seen and have enjoyed, Ratatouille's right up at the top. Anyway, the other thing that is interesting about that movie is it's got obviously the famous scene where Anton Ego, the critic, takes the bite of, what is it, the food that Ratatouille, Ratatouille. makes? Um, oh, it's Ratatouille, duh. And he suddenly flashes back and he's won over and it's real beautiful and evocative. And then he gives this speech that felt a little bit false and felt like some of Brad Bird's fascism or some whatever it is, some of Brad Bird's weird messaging coming through in that he's like, we critics, we just love to trounce things and destroy things and beat up on things. But the real job of a critic is to find something new and to champion. And I like the part about finding something new and championing, championing it. That's a nice thing to be reminded of is people like us on Sound of Sanity, Warhorn Media, we do critical work. That's a nice reminder. But the whole thing of stacking the deck against critics that way felt weird and cheap and false, especially coming from Brad Bird, who's got nothing but adulation and praise and love from critics for him to portray the critic as someone or just the job of being a critic as being an inherently generally nasty one or antagonistic one. It's like, dude, no one's ever been antagonistic towards you. You getting back at your old high school teacher or something here? Like, what's your problem? Mm-hmm. Um, can you not take any criticism? Is somebody... You got nine stars point something out of 10 and it wasn't a full 10 on IMDb or 97% on Iron Giant instead of 100% right. or whatever it is, you know. I hate, I think it's tomatoes. incredibly childish the way that Hollywood has their relate the whole their whole relationship with critics. Yeah, I know some critics can be obnoxious and just take delight. And, and we have to, like we do our other podcast, The Booketing. We just did one on Wrinkle in Time. And, <laughs> where we um, took... <laughs> where, where we took great pleasure in destroying Wrinkle in Time because we hated it. And then we, we thought about it and we tacked a little like thing on the front where we were like, hey, it's okay to have different opinions about Wrinkle. Like we didn't want to just be jerks. Mm-hmm. So I get it. But then I, you just, I feel like I see so many movies where like Birdman, do you guys ever see that? 
that Birdman movie? No. There's this nasty critic who just tells Birdman, I'm going to destroy your play tomorrow because I just like destroying things. And it's like, Birdman, how dare you? Like, what a childish way to stack the deck against your critic character just to make them a villain. Like, have critics hurt you so badly? Anyway, I don't know what to say about any of this stuff. What, uh, Iron Brad- Giant, 96%. Incredibles, 97%. Ratatouille, 96%. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, 93%. Yeah, I think Brad Bird- Tomorrowland. 50%. Well, apparently, we might have to watch that one sometime because apparently it gets pretty message heavy and some people had some problems with that. But this Brad Bird guy obviously has something to say. What is it? And do we like it or not? I feel vaguely uncomfortable with it. And I don't have an answer planned, by the way. In it's my basically head right now. you can do what you want to do. Do what you love. Don't let anybody hold you back. Don't let the critics hold you back. Don't let the typecasting hold you back. Whether you're typecast as a rat or you're typecast as a monster or you're typecast as somebody who's dangerous because you're, you have superpowers, screw that. You're special. You can be what you want to be. You have something unique and special about you, and you can use that for the greater good. And so if you're a giant robot from Mars, you don't have to be the bad guy. You can be the good guy. If you're a rat, you don't have to snivel around in the dumpster. You can do something great. If you are somebody with superpowers, you don't have to live your life as an oppressed freak who is closeted. You can use your superpowers for good, and you should. That's the dominant message you get from him. It's a message of empowerment. It's a message of not everybody's special, but you know, if there's something special about you, you can and you should use it for good. Yeah, and- I think he's just he's a little bit more sophisticated about it than a lot of. Disney just... If you boil it down, it's really simple, but the storytelling is not sim- simplistic in any way. Like, that's what's really good about... Yeah. You know, you take a simple message, and then you tell it in a way that is simple, but not simplistic. But it's... And he's really great at it. But it, it's interesting that I think all his movies, I love them all, but they all do f- just leave me feeling vaguely uncomfortable in a way that maybe a more bald-faced Disney movie that's just lying to you and saying, like... Believe in yourself, you know, like your Moana or something like just, just well, it is harder to deal with because it's sophisticated in the storytelling. I never feel like he's quite fair. It's like Kent Mansley syndrome. What's his other movie? The evil chef and the evil critic in uh, Ratatouille. I always feel like those characters are almost good. And like you said, there's you can always kind of say, well, there's the general or there's this or there's the something that balances out. So it's not stacking the deck, but it always feels just a little stacked to me. Like Brad Bird actually does have a chip on his shoulder towards the people that are holding him back from being exceptional. Yeah. Maybe feels a little passive aggressive in a way that's not like a, a clean, like Scar. He's pretty over the top. Right. Uh, Jafar, mm-hmm. pretty over Maleficent, pretty mm-hmm. over the top evil villain. But there's no apologies for their evilness. Right. They just are right. evil villains. The villains in Brad Bird are almost, I don't know if I can get behind, but I'm, there's a faux complexity to Syndrome. There's a faux complexity to the chef. But it's faux. Like, there's no real sympathy for these characters. Yeah. But there's just enough. He plays with the ideas in just enough in, in, of an evocative way that you kind of feel a little bit bad or see these characters' point of view. But then they're, they end up just being monsters anyway. So, but then compare that to, I don't know, Michael B. Jordan's character in Black Panther. They're trying well, to give you a more Jordan's, sophisticated villain. Michael B. Jordan's character in Black mm-hmm. Panther, there's no question that he is, in fact, sympathetic. 
Right. You like him. You understand his he point truly of view is completely. Michael Keaton and Hunk, if you're going to stick within, like, this is sort of an animated yeah. superhero right. genre, so stick with Marvel. Mm-hmm. Michael Keaton actually does have some, he's a bad man, but he's got some sympathetic yeah, and you, things going. You completely, yeah. in those cases with Michael Keaton or Michael B. Jordan, the Michaels, you can just say, they have a point of view, I get it, and I understand it, and I sympathize with it, it's also wrong. In the case of the Brad Bird villains, it's almost like... He has a point of view, I... I get it. I am not in any way supposed to sympathize with it. It's like, here's the point of view. You you might think it's sympathetic, but actually it's dumb and this person's an idiot and they deserve to be sucked into a jet engine and die. Uh-huh. It just feels a little bit passive aggressive and mean spirited to me somehow. It just in a way I can hardly, I'm having tr- I'm trying to talk it out because I can't quite put my finger on it. But yeah. even Kent Mansley and uh, Iron Giant, just feels a little bit did you have to actually make him a whimpering coward at the end like yeah. it, it makes it feel more awesome to just know he's a villain that you can hate it's like it's like you have to not just show your enemy and his downfall but you have to laugh at his downfall that's you kind of the feeling right really glad that he gets that's it. the flavor like beauty and the beast Jeff, Gaston. Gaston, I love his trajectory because he basically, I don't think I don't think of Gaston, and I think the new one got this wrong. I don't think Gaston's a sadist or a monster at the beginning of the movie. I think we follow him in a simplified animated movie kind of a way. We follow him, his vanity getting the better of him and turning him into a sadistic monster by the end who we're fully on board with him plummeting into that gorge and dying and we don't Here's a guy that didn't have to be a monster, but he is a monster and he deserves to die by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't quite track. I don't know. My my heart doesn't quite track with Syndrome or with Kent Mansley or with Evil Chef Guy or with Anton Ego the same way in the Brad Bird movies. And I'm not quite sure why that is, but it's interesting. But the cathartic hero moments are great. They're really great. Yeah. And with cathartic hero moments, what are you thinking of? Uh, Superman. Oh, that. The bite into the ratatouille. The the triumph of Remy is right. seen right there in the bite into the ratatouille. Which, re- the, which redeems the evil critic. Yeah. Yeah. In the case of the evil critic, that's what makes it even more complicated is that he's redeemed. But he's redeemed in such a way that he has to hate his whole job yeah, and yeah, yeah, repent yeah. of ever having really been a critic at yeah. all. And that to me seems unfair. And in Syndrome, kind of the same way to me, he's he's troubling in a weird way. I mean, it's a great. I love The Incredibles. I love Syndrome. I think he's a cool idea for a villain, and it's an interesting trajectory, and it's fun. His his death scene is fun. But yeah, I don't know. I just feel some uneasiness. Maybe maybe enough said, or I don't know if there's any other anything else worth talking about. But it's in every Brad Bird movie, so. Well, it is weird because I still love his movies. Yeah, I do too. I, I'm gonna see. I mean, he's earned my trust as a director that I'm happy to see anything that he does. I was excited to see Tomorrowland until it, yeah. uh, until all the Anton Egos out there said it wasn't any good. And I was like, okay, I trust the Anton Egos. It's interesting that I've seen every one of his movies except for Tomorrowland. Wasn't aware that he was the guy behind it until a while back. Yeah, I actually think that is interesting. I think it's, for one thing, he's only made a handful of movies, which I think shows you the craft and the care and the time that he puts into each one of those things. I mean, think about how long it took to get Incredibles 2, which, by the way, Incredibles 2 looks like it's going to be super feminist propaganda. Did we say that already? But Well, or it's playing off of that. Yeah, maybe it'll... It may be doing that. 
I he was a screenwriter yep. for Batteries Not Included, not the director, but screenwriter for Batteries Not Included, yeah. which Ooh. I saw as a kid and enjoyed. I only sixty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Only sixteen percent. Well, there you go. Maybe that's where he gets his chip on his shoulder yeah, about critics. Maybe. All right. Well, people should probably watch The Iron Giant. It's got some blasphemy, which is unfortunate. Exactly six instances of it. I think we decided. Anything else to say about this film? This cinematic movie by Mr. Bradbird. It's a handful of m- movies that can give me tears every time even if i'm working actively against it and this is one of them i watched it in a well-lit living room or family room full of people that i didn't in particularly feel like tearing up in front of but i sure teared up during the tear upable parts (laughs) yeah hard not to and i've watched more than one movie with this group of kids and one other movie that we watched they were running around and not locked in mm-hmm. at all this movie worth noting i think they were locked in the whole time yeah like nobody was distracted except for the two-year-old two yep there you go uh iron giant great movie great kids movie hope you enjoyed us talking about it folks whether you did or not what you can't deny is that it was engineered by benjamin solzer it was produced by nathan alverson it was executive produced like all fine warhorn products by jacob benzel and nathan alverson Hey, until next time, you don't have to be a gun. (laughs) 